This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder, the podcast where we try to order our crazy world. One of the perennial themes in this podcast is how internal political dysfunction in our own countries is hampering our ability to tackle international political challenges effectively. So for today's episode, I'm really, really, really excited to have as our guest former Congressman Tom Malinowski. He represented my home state of New Jersey for two terms as a Democratic member of Congress. He's on our show today to help us understand what's going on in American politics and actually how the long trajectories of American history and American politics affects global dynamics. One of the things that came out in the interview with Tom was how he sees America's role in the world and how he sees American history at this moment relative to our past. And his view was surprising to me. He's seen America as always divided and pulled apart by profound conflicts, but that justice and internationalism barely managed to win at different times, like during the Civil War or in combating the know-nothings or after we had our isolationist moment after World War I. I understand Tom's case, but my case is as follows. America really only acquired a sustained global presence. Some might call it an imperial presence after the Spanish-American War of 1898. And it was really that moment that kicked us into global ordering. So to cite Robert Kagan's magisterial work, The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, his like main argument there is that America belatedly discovered its international power because it had a huge amount of power in the late 19th century. It just didn't realize it. And we gradually took on the mantle of global ordering. Now to quote from Kagan, When given a choice at the ballot box, Americans consistently chose the more internationalist of the two candidates. I think Kagan's quote holds with one or two exceptions from 1898 all the way until 2008. But then it fails to hold because when Obama won in 2008 and 2012, he was the less internationalist of the candidates. And when Trump won in 2016, He was less internationalist, less interested in hegemonic ordering than his opponent. So American history is in a different moment than it had been previously. I've also read Robert Kagan's magisterial work, The Ghost at the Feast, which you cite. And what came through for me is he is trying to make the case that America needs to remain engaged on the world stage. But what I read in his book is that there have always been battles in the U.S. political system, and it's only reluctantly that the U.S. has kept on having to intervene. It's not that there has been overwhelming domestic support and they always supported international engagement. It was the president of America, the very first president, George Washington, who I believe said, we need to be wary of foreign entanglements. 
And that is the American psyche. They don't want to be the world's policemen. It is events that pull them into that role time and again. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. The US had hoped to step back from the Middle East. It wants to focus its efforts in China or combating China. And yet again, events are forcing them to re-engage in that part of the world as well. So I think they are reluctant internationalists. This is why this is such a fascinating debate. So I'm making the point about elite consensus and policy moving in one direction and now reversing and going in the other. What I find exciting and refreshing and stimulating about a chat with an experienced policymaker like Tom Malinowski is that he and I can both have history degrees and both having studied these topics, but we can profoundly read history differently, draw different arguments And I think listeners are going to enjoy our agreeable disagreement a bit later in the show because in a way it coalesces what I'm about. The reason that I created this show, Alex, is I have a view, and it may be wrong, and I'm 100% sure it's not provable. This is not a scientific view. It is a subjective thing that I experienced of how our historic era differs from previous ones that I had lived in American history and that I had read about in Anglo-American global hegemony, that we've changed. Well, I was going to refer to the moment soon after 9-11, when the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, addressed a joint session of Congress. And I happened to be given an opportunity to attend that session. And I have never forgotten that moment in the aftermath of this appalling terrorist attack, where Tony Blair says to the... American politicians assembled there. No one wants to be the world's policeman. I know you don't want to be the world's policeman, but it's your job to do. And America remains the indispensable nation. So let's turn to our guest for today, former Congressman Tom Malinowski. I couldn't resist starting our interview with Tom by asking him about why he decided to arrive by zipline into his lovely wedding last year, and whether that was a metaphor for his attitude to politics as a whole. Is politics and another adrenaline-filled arena where you need to be ready to take risks to survive? I don't understand why everyone doesn't enter their wedding on a zip line. That's so dull, a conventional way. Walk up to the altar in a boring way. You're supposed to entertain your audience. Entering politics when I did was maybe more dangerous than that little fun stunt. In my case, it was not a lifelong pursuit. I was a public servant. I worked at the State Department and the White House. But, you know, a funny thing happened in America in 2016. We elected somebody somewhat untraditional to the White House, and I felt like something needed to be done to keep our democracy going. And I wanted to be effective. I decided there was nothing more effective I can do than to try to shift control of our House of Representatives so that Trump could be held in check and held accountable. And it was much harder and scarier than I had imagined. But heck, I was successful. And here we are. So let's talk a little bit about your district. I feel like Central Jersey, North Central Jersey encapsulates a lot of what makes America great a bit of migration, different kinds of economic activity, proximity to Manhattan, but its own dynamic. How do you see your district relative to America? 
It's a middle-of-the-road district politically, probably more Republican, definitely more Republican traditionally, very affluent, well-educated, suburban, rural. You know, it would have voted for Romney and Bush and Reagan and all the traditional Republicans, but it's not a Trump district. I was able to win for that reason. I'm guessing that this is because elite coastal areas, even when they're in traditionally Republican spaces for a whole range of taxation reasons, are internationalist. But similar districts in middle America or the South might not have that same dimension. This has been a paradox I've never understood about American life because the middle of the country and the South are as dependent on exports and international investment as the coast. So maybe you could talk us through how people see things differently. I don't know about the internationalist part of it. The Republican part of it was Republican because they're pro-business. They don't like high taxes. They don't think the government should interfere too much in their lives. But they're also not into overthrowing the government. They're not into denigrating the FBI and the military. They're not into telling people that vaccines are part of some crazy conspiracy. These are reasonable, pragmatic people who were, many of them, enough of them to elect me, repelled by Trumpism. I think that's a key point, is that it's the decrying of the lack of civility. I think that without this civility, our institutions don't function because you don't really have checks and balances if you don't have the culture to enforce them. So maybe you could shed some light on the smear tactics that you faced and how politics has gotten dirtier. What can we do to restore civility and a culture of fair play to our civic discourse? In my first race in 2018, the other side ran ads accusing me of being soft on terrorists. In my second race, I was allegedly soft on pedophiles. And in my third race, I was allegedly a corrupt stock trader. So I felt like the opposition's view of my character was improving from race <laughs> one to race three. And yet the third one is the one that you lost. So it was the corrupt stock trader that pushed your voters over the edge. Actually, not at all, no. But what caused my defeat in my last race was that the district boundaries changed. Ah. And a moderately Republican district became even more Republican. Despite those attacks, I did better than in past elections if you looked at it precinct by precinct. So the attacks didn't really work. They were unpleasant. It was depressing to see people running for office, not on a positive agenda, not talking about the issues, but on that kind of stupid character assassination, but it didn't work. Look, I don't know when politics was entirely civil in America. If you ask Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they would probably think that things have gotten much more gentlemanly over the years than what they were used to. Where we have seen a more dangerous erosion is in respect for those unspoken norms of abiding by the rules of the game. There's no set of laws that can be written that can guarantee respect for democratic rules. If you elect the right people who are unscrupulous and stuff the courts with people who support you, eventually you can use the rules to break all the rules. We came close to that in America. By one more Trump victory, we might have actually had a situation where a president could defy the will of the voters and the successful dictators and fascists and communists have generally been people who have no inner moral constraints. Like they're willing to seize power. They're willing to hurt their opponents. They're willing to break the norms, whereas good people hesitate. That's why evil rises. And it's also why we need politicians who ride zip lines 
into their weddings because they could be good and not hesitate. Exactly. It should be the key criteria for any <laughs> person we elect in the future. As part of the swearing-in process. Correct. I will start the zipline party and you can be my first supporter. But yeah, these guys, they generate outrage and then they ride outrage to power. And it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. These guys have no governing ideology. It's just about feeding the desire for a leader who will smash everything to pieces. Do you see our domestic divisions here causing a situation where it's not just Putin licking his chops, but the Chinese are like, wow, Rome is going to fall. We can just step up to global leadership because they're tearing each other's heads off. They're not even paying attention to what we're doing. It has almost always been like this. We had a civil war. Hundreds of thousands of Americans slaughtered each other. We had mass terrorism in the South following the civil war and a failed reconstruction that also divided America, I think, much more than anything we're experiencing today. We had the Ku Klux Klan not just rampaging across the South, but in my genteel northern New Jersey congressional district, having cross-burning rallies in the 1920s and 1930s to protest immigration in America. We had McCarthyism, people destroying each other's lives and careers over false accusations of disloyalty and communism. We had a civil rights movement that divided America and Richard Nixon running and winning the presidency on a similarly divisive platform in, in 68 and 72. I could go on and on and on. One of my favorite quotes is from Lincoln at the end of the Civil War, it's the last weeks of the war, and he's out on the front lines in Virginia, sitting around a campfire with his aides, and somebody asks him, Mr. Lincoln, did you ever think at any point in the war that the Union would lose? And he said, no. I always thought that there was just enough virtue in the Republic to save it. Sometimes none to spare, but enough to meet the emergency. And I think that's been the story of our country. There's always just barely enough virtue to save the Republic. And that doesn't mean that it'll never fall. We have to be constantly terrified that that might happen because that's what gets people to come out to the polls when they absolutely have to, to elect a Joe Biden over Donald Trump by one or two percentage points. But somehow we've been able to do it again and again and again. If I'm China, if I'm Russia, if I would be scared of a country that has the capacity to do that again and again and again over more than 200 years. We have a very different view of American history, I guess, Tom, and that's, I think, something which is worth clarifying for our listeners. I see those struggles that you sketched as just domestic issues that did not affect the elite consensus about foreign policy. So I see something very, very different than you, which is that we never fell prey to this problem whereby domestic division so overwhelms that there isn't a consensus approach to foreign policy. And I look at the period, particularly from Truman until Reagan, of one of almost complete consensus on America's role in the world, setting the terms of trade, dealing with our NATO allies, confronting the Soviets. You know, Reagan might have pushed a little bit more on defense spending. Carter might have pushed a little less, but it was elite consensus. And now, bizarrely, if you're a Republican in the Trumpian wing, you like the Emiratis. And if you're a Democrat, you're like, well, we have to work with the Qataris and we have to have this Iran deal. That is fundamentally different. Do you disagree? Completely. We look back to post-World War II, the Truman administration as this glorious period of bipartisan support for American leadership. That's bullshit. 
1946, there was overwhelming bipartisan support to get out of Europe, bring all of our troops home. Nobody wanted to do anything like NATO or the Marshall Plan. There were a handful of people in the U.S. government who saw the rise of communism as a threat, and the rest of them wanted nothing to do with it. We were forced back into global leadership by the Soviet bomb and the invasion of Korea and things that were just so terrible that we couldn't ignore them. We Even into the 1950s, there was a major faction of the Republican Party, the Taft Republicans, who opposed NATO, who did not want the United States to have a single soldier stationed in Europe. We tore ourselves apart in the McCarthy years over how we should address the Soviet threat. You had one group of people who believed that America's openness and democracy and our willingness to take in immigrants was a strength, and another group of people who felt that it made us vulnerable, that it was one of our greatest weaknesses. There were all kinds of debates, and the internationalists tended to win those debates. But if you'd been present at the time, there were massive disagreements. And what's going on now? We've got a massive disagreement again because we have one faction of the Republican Party that is isolationist and probably ideologically pro-Putin. And yet, in the midst of these divisions, we have managed an investment in Ukraine that is equivalent to our investment in the Marshall Plan in terms of the amount of money we are spending. We've managed to mobilize with the Internationalist Party having, when the war started in Ukraine, a five-seat majority in the House and a zero-seat or one-seat majority in the Senate. We managed to spend over $100 billion to help a country in Eastern Europe fend off an invasion by an authoritarian power. So I think it's a story of just enough virtue triumphing in a debate that has been raging in America since the dawn of our country. We can agree to disagree agreeably. I have a view of fairly consensus Anglo-American leadership and that that vision of being willing to make sacrifices to set the terms of trade in the international system and to coordinate allies and use Anglo-American convening power was something which was shared by both parties in the U.S. and the liberals, Tories, and Labour, all the way till Attlee in the U.K. And I think that that is at the essence of what we're talking about here on the Disorder podcast, is that the global enduring disorder is a new phenomenon. So it's been very interesting listening to both of you debating about whether America has always been a mess or is particularly messy today. I think it's always been messy. Your democracy's never been perfect and you've intervened or acted internationally in an imperfect way. But I certainly hold to the view that America remains the indispensable nation. And no matter how badly you do things, I look at most other countries around the world and think they probably would do it worse. They neither have the leverage nor the presence or the sustainability that America has had. We're conducting this interview when we don't yet know what's going to transpire in the Middle East. How do you think the US is going to handle this moment? There's been backlashes that after 9-11, America engaged and went into Afghanistan and into Iraq. Then it retrenched. There was a worry they'd got it wrong. There was then caution over Syria. So... How do you see things, this sort of political dysfunction playing out internationally right now? This is very much an example of what we all agree on, which is that the United States is the indispensable nation. Every party in the Middle East looks to the United States right now. The Biden administration, I think, is trying to strike the appropriate balance 
that is to support Israel in its legitimate right to, to self-defense after a horrific terrorist attack, and then to use that influence to try to persuade a very unstable and divided Israeli leadership to respond in a way that's consistent with the values that we're fighting for everywhere. There has to be some consistency, for example, between how we talk to Israel about protection of civilian life in Gaza and how we talk about what Putin is doing in Ukraine. You, you can't say that destroying apartment buildings in one place is bad, but in the other place it's justified. And I think the Biden administration understands the need to do that. They will be criticized by critics on, on both sides. But I think it's a balancing act. I do think that their goal is the right one to try to make sure that Hamas, the Hamas threat is eliminated, but the, the rights of the Palestinians, including the immediate imperative to protect the lives of civilians in Gaza, is also part of the equation. What is it that makes, gives courage to people like the Russian opposition politician Vladimir Karamazov, who flew back to Moscow having criticized the Putin regime very strongly for its invasion of Ukraine. And he flew back in like Alexei Navalny, knowing he was going to be arrested. And you and I have both worked on Burma, particularly have a close affiliation with that country. What is it that gives these individuals like Aung San Suu Kyi or Vladimir Karamurza the courage to keep fighting and facing arrest? There are people in the world who say that something should be done. And then there are people in the world who say something should be done. And I guess I'm the one who has to do it because nobody else will. Yes, it takes courage. Sometimes it takes a little bit of ego too. Yeah. <laughs> this belief that only I can play this role and that's okay. But it's incredibly important to have such leaders. Burma, Aung San Suu Kyi turned out to be a flawed heroine. Because of her issues on the Rohingya, right? And, and many others. Yeah. But during the period when the Burmese people were struggling against all odds, it was incredibly important for that struggle to be personified, to have a leader to whom they could look, a leader who could convince the world that there was an alternative. It's incredibly important for Russia to have such leaders because we are all tempted, many people are tempted to look at Russia under Putin and to say there's no alternative. The problem is so deeply rooted in Russian history and culture that even if Putin were to go, the alternative would be just as bad or worse. And let's admit there are strong arguments on that side as well, but the existence of people like our friend Vladimir Karamurza and Navalny and, and so many other maybe less well-known heroes who have struggled against the Putin regime gives all of us hope that a different Russia, a better Russia is possible. And if we don't have that hope, we're not going to work for it. If you had a magic wand and could pull out of the hat something that your government could do or the Western world could do or should be doing, what would it be? Should we be doing more internationally or do we need to start by focusing and getting ourselves in order back at home? What do we need to be doing? We've talked a lot about what has changed and what hasn't changed, but there are some things that are new. And one of them is how people around the world get information about their world. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, most Americans, and I assume it's the same in the UK and Europe, we got our news at 7 p.m. from 
half hour long newscasts that were edited, moderated, presented by responsible journalists who tried to tell us what was important and what was true. And then we all went back to arguing about everything, but we argued from the same set of facts. And that's totally changed in the last 10 to 20 years. The fact that we now get most of our information mediated through Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, which are platforms that are consciously designed, specifically designed to divide us and to intensify our worst basest emotions, our anger, our fear, our hatred of the other, because that's what keeps us glued to our screens the longest. So if you're a conservative Republican in the United States, you are just going to be flooded, bombarded with information that makes you hate liberals even more than you already do. And if you're a liberal Democrat, the same thing happens. And there's no way, for example, in the United States under our current laws to hold our social media companies accountable for this. The EU is trying in ways that are a little bit clumsy, but at least they're trying. In episode two with Asha Rangappa, a former FBI agent and now a CNN analyst, We spoke a lot about the algorithms that promote extreme content and why those algorithms polarize. But she has the novel view as a lawyer, and I'm I'm not a lawyer, Tom. I don't know this to be true, but I take her word for it, which is that there is American legal precedent, which could be used to both tax and regulate those industries as sin industries, like was done with big tobacco. And the ability exists for class action lawsuits from a bottom-up perspective and legislative issues from a congressional perspective drawing on pre-existing law. It's just that it's not been done. It's not that we don't have the legal infrastructure. Yeah, sure. We could do a lot of things. There is a law that in the United States that protects online platforms from lawsuits. If you libel me on Facebook, I can sue you, but I can't sue Facebook. Right, and it it makes them not publishers, and and it's insane relative to when you write a book in the UK and you get sued and they take out stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, and it made sense when they were the equivalent of online community bulletin boards, when they were just providing a space for all of us to post stuff and holding them accountable for our crazy rantings would not have made sense. But now that they are writing these extremely sophisticated software programs, the algorithms that literally determine what you and I see and hear about the world every single day, the idea that we don't hold them responsible for what they know to be the consequences of those algorithms, they know they've done internal studies that demonstrate that most of the people joining extremist groups in the United States today are joining because their platforms recommended to them that they join. And there's a solution, right? If I had a magic wand, I would redesign social media. And why is it so hard to get that through Congress? It's still hard for people to understand. It's much easier to have a debate among politicians about what we should allow and what we should forbid on social media. Do you somehow force them to or encourage the social media companies to block bad content? Or is that a bad thing because freedom of speech says in America we should allow all kinds of content? That's a debate everyone understands. So we're having a 19th century debate when a 21st century one could solve the problem. Correct. And it's fairly easy to see how you could redesign these platforms so that they would still be profitable, maybe 3% less profitable than they are today, but where what we get is actually good for us. 
Facebook did an amazing experiment a few years ago where they took an, an experimental subgroup of their users and asked them, rate every post you see on your newsfeed as being either good for the world or bad for the world. And so people went good, bad, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And the algorithm learned from that and gave them a new newsfeed, which was much nicer. It was legitimate news sources. It was family photo albums. It was cute puppy videos. It was less disinformation. But engagement, the amount of time that those people spent on the platform, very slightly declined. And so the Facebook didn't use this. So, you know, whether you're an EU regulator or an American member of Congress, you've got to be thinking about how do you change the incentive structure so that the big platforms do exactly that. That would be my one thing if I had a magic wand. Well, I want to ask you about the construction on I-95 getting to Washington. It's been (laughs) such a mess for so long, Tom. This is why I love being a member of Congress from New Jersey, because we'd always come back to this kind of conversation. And if only this was what we were arguing about as Americans right now, I'd be worried about a lot less. What can be done? We had about 50 years of disinvestment in infrastructure in the United States, which we only recently began to reverse. We've still got a long way to go because, among other things, we don't have a mass transit system in the United States that can absorb the growing demand for people to get from one place to another. One of the interesting debates in transportation is, do we spend money adding lanes to highways or building trains? As it turns out, it actually, as expensive it is to build high-speed rail in the United States, it's actually more expensive per passenger mile to add capacity to highways. And we have found that if you add capacity to highways, it doesn't actually reduce traffic. It just encourages more people to drive. Yeah, more people. It's called induced demand. More people will drive on that highway if you add a lane to it eventually. Why is Amtrak so expensive? Why is it that we can't have a European level of price so that people will actually go from New York, New Jersey to DC on Amtrak? It's a catch-22, right? You need to provide better service for people to want to ride. But until you do, people don't want to ride. And so you're not making enough money to justify expanding or improving the service. So there has to be a bit of a leap of faith. Like if you talk to the vast majority of my former colleagues from Texas and New Mexico and, and Nebraska, they've never seen a train. They say, well, my constituents wouldn't want to ride a train. Our answer is, well, maybe if they had a train, they'd want to ride it. (laughs) And so you have that endless debate. We have a lot of places in America where large metropolitan areas are close enough together that there would be huge demand for a good system of high-speed rail if it existed. But the upfront investment is very high, and it's one we just have to decide we want to make. We have to do this, otherwise the disorder will never be ordered. One of the things that I learned as a member of Congress from New Jersey is that if we want to stop fascism in the United States, we have to make the trains run on time. We're going to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll be reflecting on what Tom's told us to think about how we can order the disorder. Alex, we heard from a man who was courageous enough not only to zip line to his own wedding, but to face down neopopulism in his own state 
to throw his hat in the ring to say, hey, I was an expert. Now I want to be a leader. And I came away feeling he has that kind of quiet, calm confidence that maybe I lack, but that we need a lot more of in America and on the world stage. I couldn't agree more. And I have often wondered myself, having stepped out of the civil service and then becoming quite active on British politics in terms of commentating and reflecting on international politics. And yet I'm terrified at the idea of entering politics myself, even though I've had quite a few people reaching out to me and saying, please, would you consider being a candidate? And I am someone who has done a bungee jump. So I don't think I lack courage in many things but it really takes quiet conviction to enter politics. And actually, Tom's point about why is it that certain people put themselves forward, people like Vladimir Karamazov or Aung San Suu Kyi, and they look around and they say, something needs to be done and somebody needs to do it. And if it's not me, then who? I mean, we need people who are willing to put themselves forward but the climate of today's politics, and I would say especially for women, I think it's particularly toxic. There is a misogynistic trend, but it's a really toxic arena. So having people like Tom willing to run is so important. I think you hit on a few things there. It's not only about courage and ability, but maybe a lack of cynicism. I don't struggle with the courage to risk it all, to take the gamble, to, you know, find your ski caught on some ice and ruin your knee. You bear the scars of your dangerous life, yeah, Jason. Yeah, and I don't lack the convictions, but I might have too much cynicism. My interaction with the apparatus, in other words, my time in, in Washington and working on K Street and briefing people at state is nothing works. The system is so broken, there's nothing really that... I can contribute, and therefore my initial idealism of you got to be on the inside trying to make incremental change rather than throwing bombs from the outside. No, actually, you can't be inside the beast right now because it's simply so broken. And I think that that has to do with a cast of mind. I look at a guy like Malinowski, and from what we've heard today, is he's actually more quietly optimistic about the future than, say, I am. And when he reads into American history— Oh, well, we always had no-nothings and in, in anti-migration politics in this country. So look, we struggled in the past and the internationalists won, so we will again. And I just don't have that kind of lack of cynicism and quiet optimism. And therefore, I think I wouldn't be able to lead others to have that. What do you think, Alex? I'm absolutely not cynical. Absolutely not. And I have always been extremely idealistic as well. However, I'm not particularly hopeful right now. I do share your pessimism about the state of the world, but I've never ever succumbed to cynicism. And I think if we succumb to cynicism and to apathy and nothing can be changed, then nothing will be changed. I can't remember who it was. The famous quote is, all it takes for bad things to happen is for good people to do nothing. But you have to keep hoping. I mean, I love Tom's comment, his quote about President Lincoln, there's always just enough virtue 
to eventually allow the good things to happen and the right decisions to be made, even after we've exhausted all the alternatives. And if you succumb to cynicism and despair, the bad guys really have one. It's just that we can't take things for granted. And I think one of the problems we've had in the UK is complacency about our system. I think many people are disillusioned by what's happened in the last six years in the UK and the state of our politics. But there still is a little bit of an exceptionalist mindset and, ah, but look at those crazy French or look at the Italians. And it's like, are you serious? Look at this discussion we've just been having about roads and railways and healthcare systems. Actually, the Europeans do some things much better than us, and we could learn from them. And there is a certain state of complacency in the UK, and there is a certain state of exceptionalism in the US. We need to overcome that mindset. I'm probably as idealistic as you, Alex, and I really want to think big and bold and to try to create a NATO-like institution for climate change and try to have the Western and democratic allies figure out new ways to incentivize peace in the Middle East. And I want to throw my hat in the ring there. I think that the cynicism I was referencing is about the interpersonal relations. And if I think about someone not only with your sunny disposition, but with your interpersonal skills of, I can work together with you know, the people at this think tank or in that State Department bureau. My experience, unfortunately, and it's super interesting when I, I listen to a politician like Tom, is that actually you can't work together with the people at that think tank or in that State Department bureau because they're actually incompetent. If they are competent- <laughs> I never think that. I never think that. No, but that's that. based on experience. I didn't think that until I did it. Do you know what I mean? When I was, when I was wet behind the ears and leaving- my Fulbright in Syria to do my internship at the State Department in Muscat and Oman, I was like, wow, this is great. Do you know what I mean? This is a major embassy and we have this public relations department and we have this. And then I began to work with people and I'm like, well, actually, inside the beast, the very natures of the institutions can't function. That's the part of the enduring disorder. You know what I mean? And an interesting bit about, say, how you and Tom, having been career diplomats and advised politicians more from the inside rather than the way I've done it from the outside, is that you have more of a faith that the institutions can be fixed and corrected, which I lack. I do have faith and I have direct experience of making a difference. Even as a very junior diplomat, I remember making a case for why we should not continue to give aid to camps run by the Khmer Rouge in Thailand, Cambodian refugee camps. And I won that argument. I have an experience of persuading the Foreign Office that we should give aid to Burmese refugees seeking sanctuary in Thailand. And I won that case. I have experience of persuading the Thai Foreign Minister to let those Burmese refugees stay. I think you can make a difference, but you have to care enough to sustain the effort and to engage and engage and engage. And what really worries me is when people say, well, everybody are morons and everybody's useless and everybody's corrupt and we're not going to try. It is hard, but you can make a difference. You know, I, I did a lot of research for my doctorate in the archive at Kew. That's the National Archives in Britain. 
and you would read the way that things were minuted. When you took over the post, you could see policy essentially from Palmerston to Lord Salisbury to the present on a topic. And now when you become the econ officer at the U.S. Embassy to Libya based in Tunis, the Libyan external office, you don't get a dossier with what all the American companies are doing. You don't get an overview of how the electricity sector in Libya relates to the oil sector. There's essentially no onboarding notes at all. And you're like, okay, you're in the job. Respond to this firefight. There's a trade mission that we have to do. With no sense of the historical perspective of what was the Qaddafian economy, what was the whatever. And that's what I'm getting at is that I don't think our institutions work the ways that they should. And if Melanowski was made supreme poobah of the West for a day, which I would love, I think that he would want us to see things in a longer durée to collate expert opinion and to have more root and branch reform so that we could build those railroads, so that we could make 20-year investments that we're not going to, you know, necessarily benefit before the next electoral cycle. But it's really difficult for a far-sighted individual like him to get power in our current rabble-rousing, what have you done for me lately? How can you win arguments online? So although I want to make him grand poobah for a day, I don't know how he rises to prominence or how we get more Melanowskis into politics. Alex, let's close this episode with that. What can we do to get more people like Tom to lead us. Exactly. We should have a zipline competition and see, you know, who can recite Thucydides in the ancient Greek while ziplining into the congressional tryouts and whoever gets it wins and he's appointed immediately. That's how it should be. Yeah, Jason, I'm not sure that's 100% a good idea. Somebody who could survive on a zipline while quoting Greek or Latin writers. That sounds very much like Boris Johnson, and we do not need another leader like him. So I think we keep the zip lining to showmen, and we keep the politics to serious thinkers like Tom. Just before we go, I want to flag up that in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be joined in the Disorder podcast by Laura Thornton, Senior Vice President for Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, who has the answer to Tom's wish for a magic wand to tackle disinformation and the algorithms of social media that push material that divides us rather than unites and strengthens our democracy. Tap follow right now and you'll get every one of our new episodes as they come out. You can find us on social media and you don't even need a polarizing algorithm. You just need to search at Disorder Show. You can read more about today's topic by visiting our show notes. And our wonderful producer who makes order out of our episodes is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you have an orderly week. 